Here we are again. Welcome back, farmers. This podcast reflects my personal opinions, views, and my own interpretation of information and was prepared in my personal capacity. It does not represent any institution, corporation, association, or society, just me. 2019 is quickly coming to an end, and I've been thinking a lot about what 2020 might bring and exactly what I'm trying to do with this podcast. So to start, I hope to get better at it. I really don't know how my podcasts measure up to others that are out there. Ironically, I try not to listen to podcasts, at least not right now. And I do it on purpose because I'm trying not to compare or conform to what everybody else is doing. And that's probably obvious with my less than pristine approach. I don't spend a lot of time editing mistakes and imperfections, like when I laugh at my own jokes or stutter or pronounce something wrong. Perfection isn't my goal. And that's the second intention I have for 2020, just to be authentic. This might be a shocker because in a world where polished personas are popular on Instagram and YouTube, I am intentionally not endorsing that image. As a mom and a wife and a pharmacist, I've dropped this all or nothing, right or wrong, perfect or flawed perspective, which only leads to disappointment or even worse, it stalls any effort to get started or try it all. So in a world that's messy and complicated and can be so overwhelming, maybe the goal isn't to be polished and perfect. Maybe it could be just to show up and contribute something, however big or small. And imagine that you imply this outlook to your role as the one in the white coat. Let me tell you, it is life-changing. In 2020, what if we decided that it's not up to us to fix all that is broken, but just to keep showing up, to do what we can today, and be satisfied that tomorrow we can do a little bit more. Now, I've shared my ideas about 2020. Let's discuss some of the things you all have shared with me. Many Canadian farmers have told me where they listen to my podcast. Information that I did not solicit, but received nonetheless. You've told me that you sometimes listen with other people. I never thought about this before. To me, it feels like I'm talking to a friend, so I didn't think about someone playing this in their car with coworkers or friends. Two people have told me that they regularly listen to the Canadian farmer in the bathtub. All right, then. And one said she found it relaxing to listen to the podcast at night with all of the lights turned off. Okay. And I do mean all of the lights in her home. Wherever you are, I'm glad that you're listening. But for the record, I choose to picture you alone, not among an audience, in a well-lit area and fully clothed. Okay. Right, so who's fired up to talk more about birth control and emergency contraception? Christmas has come early. We're going to start with the meat and potatoes, drug interactions. The first that everybody thinks of is the effect of antibiotics when taking the pill. Current evidence does not support the notion of this fertility surge when we give a moxel to someone on a less. In fact, backup contraception is not required for short-term antibiotic use except rifampin, and we hardly ever use that in community. But if antibiotics or an illness cause vomiting or diarrhea, it is possible that absorption of the OCP could be effective, and then backup is recommended. So, the ambitious patient 
might consider picking up some condoms when they go to get their gravel and ammonium. Anticonvulsants like phenytoin, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine are enzyme inducers, and these can decrease the efficacy of the pill, but they won't affect Depo-Provera or IUDs. So between the last podcast and a little bit in this one already, we've talked about when and how to initiate contraception, but we haven't talked about when to stop, so I want to do that really quickly. What happens when our patient decides she wants to conceive or she reaches menopause? Then what? So if someone's established on contraception and they would like to conceive, the method of contraception can be discontinued abruptly. I haven't found any resources that recommend a taper. You're in or you're out. After stopping combined hormonal contraception, there's a 57% pregnancy rate after three months, 81% after 12 months, and 86% after 13 months. When Depo-Provera injections are stopped, fertility may be impaired for up to one year, with an average woman conceiving nine months after the last injection. And IUDs must be removed by a healthcare professional. It's not a do-it-yourself type of discontinuation. Okay, now menopause. Most women reach menopause between ages 40 to 60, which is quite a range really, and very few women wish to become pregnant at this age. So you might think, hey, for good measure, We'll continue contraception right through menopause until the first pension check arrives. But it's not that easy. As women age, there are considerable risks to think about, both if they were to become pregnant and if they continue to use hormonal contraception in a season when age compounds potential risks. So let's start with non-hormonal contraception. If a woman is using a non-hormonal method and is over 50, she can throw caution to the wind one year after her last period. But if she's less than 50 years old and has reached menopause, it's recommended to continue using the non-hormonal contraception for two years past her last period, just in case. Continuation of hormonal contraception is really individual and based on risk factors, comorbidities, and patient preference. Recall that diabetes, ischemic heart disease, and hypertension are just some of the contraindications to combine hormonal contraception, and these conditions may be diagnosed after CHC is established, so continuation should be reevaluated at that time. If combined hormonal contraception can be safely continued, there are benefits beyond preventing the surprise sibling. CHC may improve bone mineral density, it could help with vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes, and it can decrease the risk of ovarian and endometrial cancer in premenopausal women. Okay, we need to move on now to emergency contraception. So let's begin with when it's indicated. Just because you've had unprotected sex doesn't necessarily mean you need plan B. So if a woman takes combined oral contraception, emergency contraception is indicated when one pill is missed during week one, or when three or more pills are missed during weeks two or three. If she's taking the mini pill and she's missed a dose, which would be considered taken more than three hours past her usual time, she would also be, um, the emergency contraception rather, would also be indicated. So just one missed dose in that case. For Depo-Provera, emergency contraception is indicated if the injection is more than two weeks late. So it's supposed to be administered every three months or every 12 to 13 weeks. So it would be considered late by week 15. Now, information I read says that at 14 weeks or more past the last injection, a pregnancy test is recommended. 
and emergency contraception is indicated if the woman has had unprotected sex during the previous five days. If she's had sex within the last two weeks, emergency contraception may or may not be indicated, but you should do a pregnancy test. And if it's negative, administer Depo-Provera as soon as possible. Backup is recommended for seven days. Emergency contraception is also indicated when no contraceptive method was used or in cases where there's condom breakage or leakage, dislodgement of a diaphragm or cervical cap, if a vaginal ring is expelled, detachment of a contraceptive patch for more than 24 hours or if the time is unknown, ejaculation on the external genitalia, and sexual assault. It's important to remember that emergency contraception isn't like birth control. There are no contraindications, like hypertension, for example, because the duration of treatment is so short. So regardless of someone's comorbidities, they can be given emergency contraception. Plan B is the one that comes to mind for most people as the emergency contraception of choice, but the copper IUD is actually more effective than Plan B or the YUZP method. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Y-U-Z-P-E. And we're going to cover that in a minute. And the copper IUD can be inserted up to seven days after unprotected sex. There's 12 types of copper IUDs in Canada that vary in brand sizes and costs. And insertion takes place in a clinic and only the copper IUD is used for emergency contraception. The levonorgestrel IUD is not recommended because it's never been evaluated. Okay, now on to plan B. Levonorgestrel can be given as two doses of 0.75 milligram tablets or one tablet at a 1.5 milligram strength. And if it's taken within 24 hours of unprotected sex, it will prevent 95% of pregnancies. If taken 49 to 72 hours later, it prevents pregnancy 58% of the time. So plan B works by preventing the surge in luteinizing hormone. And so it won't work on the day before ovulation or after ovulation has already occurred because the surge has surged. Hormonal contraception can be started the day of or the day after plan B and abstinence or a barrier method of contraception is required for the next week. The effect of plan B can be dependent on patient weight. There's a Health Canada advisory regarding the effectiveness with a high BMI. But this isn't a reason to withhold it, um, but it could be a reason to consider other methods if the patient agrees, so perhaps a copper IUD. And plan B can be repeated, and the frequency of use isn't a reason to deny access. Ulipristal acetate is an option on the MedSask pharmacist assessment document. Um, we're not going to cover that today. As far as I know, the only Health Canada indication for ulipristal acetate is for fibroids but we'll come back to this another time. We're going to talk about the USP method. Um, this one's an older method of combined oral contraception, and it's given in two doses, 12 hours apart. So it's similar to plan B in that you're just taking, you know, this one day of treatment, but you can just use regular birth control pills to do it. So similar concerns as with the levonorgestrel emergency contraception in regards to reduced effectiveness in overweight women. So just as an example, five tablets of a less repeated now and then again in 12 hours would be considered the USP method or four yellow pills out of triquilar taken now and then repeated. Emergency contraception drug interactions can still occur like with anticonvulsants. 
And that's why the copper IUD would be the method of choice because it's not affected by this interaction either. But you shouldn't withhold hormonal emergency contraception even if the patient is taking anticonvulsants or something else that might interact. Okay, adverse effects. Nausea and vomiting. It's going to be higher with the USP method because of the estrogen component. Um, If the patient vomits within two hours, the dose should be repeated. Dizziness, fatigue, headache, breast tenderness, those are all possible side effects. If someone is breastfeeding, plan B is the emergency contraception of choice and you do not need to stop breastfeeding after you take it. After emergency contraception is taken, whether it's just the levonorgestrel alone or combined estrogen progestin, the patient should be advised not to have sex or use a barrier method for the next seven days or until her next period, whichever comes first. If her period doesn't start after 21 days, she should take a pregnancy test. I mentioned the MedSAS assessment document already. I'm sorry, this is so funny. Um, it's available online, and there's a document from the Saskatchewan College of Pharmacy Professionals. It's called the... Can you hear my kids screaming? Oh, my gosh. Okay, it's called the Pharmacy Assessment Record Emergency Contraception, and I'll link them. Both are really good resources, but in the latter document, there are suggested questions that you can ask your patient during an assessment. So you just have to hear some of this. Okay, so this one is practical. Which method do you think you would like to try? That's fair. I mean, I I would ask somebody that. Okay, but what about this one? How convenient do you want the method to be? How would somebody even answer that? Um, moderately convenient, please. I prefer to be inconvenienced a little bit if possible because I enjoy challenge. Okay, here's the other question I thought was really funny. How important is it that you do not get pregnant? Can you imagine? Like, what a confidence booster. (laughs) Please prescribe some contraception for me. Oh my gosh, there's one more and I'm I'm not going to read it to you. If you want to, you can go and look it up. But it's meant to assess how comfortable a woman might be with using a vaginal ring. So let's just leave that one to your imagination. The point, though, is to take personal circumstances into consideration and not dictate which you think would be best, but to provide useful information to consider. Like, progestin only may be preferred in someone who's breastfeeding or who has migraines, sickle cell anemia, or women taking anticonvulsant medications. And it can also be better for those who wish to reduce heavy bleeding. For someone who has concerns about acne, combination oral contraceptives could be considered, and all of them are effective due to the estrogen component, which has inhibitory effects on acne. Androgens worsen acne because they promote oil production in the skin, and it's the progestin that has the androgenic effects, and the progestin generation determines the androgenic activity. Norethindrone, the progestin found in Micronor, is a first-generation progestin. First and second-generation progestins are more androgenic, so they will be more likely to worsen acne. Whereas third-generation progestins, like desogestrel and norgestimate, have little androgenic activity. And then there's drosperinone. This progestin is anti-androgenic, and indicated primarily for acne rather than even contraception. So the bottom line, Micronor is more likely to worsen acne, whereas Diane is more likely to clear it up. And for the same reason, Micronor is more likely to cause unwanted hair growth, 
as compared to combined oral contraception, which contains estrogen to balance out that androgenic effect of the progestin. Here are some other considerations when helping a woman choose which method of contraception is right for her. The levonorgestrel IUD comes in two strengths. The 52 milligram reduces blood loss by 74 to 98%. Although irregular bleeding are common at first, 50% of women have no period after six months. So this would be ideal for women who complain of excessive bleeding. But the copper IUD could actually increase menstrual blood loss up to 65%. Not a good choice for a heavy bleeder. The IUD is indicated for any woman regardless of whether they've had a child or not, but those who haven't delivered a baby are more likely to feel pain when it goes in and when it comes out. But the pain is considerably less than giving birth to a child. Side effects of the LNG IUD are related to the hormone release, so progestin is going to cause possibly acne, breast tenderness, headaches, and mood changes, but these usually decrease over time. I should pause now because my children have come upstairs and are screaming in the background, but I'm almost finished, so I'm going to plug on through. Depo-Provera is convenient in the sense that you don't have to remember to take pills every day, but you do need to get it injected every 12 weeks. The most common side effect is headache and also possibly acne, again, progestin, decreased libido, breast tenderness, abdominal pain or discomfort. Don't forget about weight gain and loss of bone density. And one final tidbit I found that I thought was interesting. Although not approved by Health Canada, some women don't remove the NuvaRing. So after three weeks, they leave it in for a fourth week and then remove it and insert a new one right away. And the result is similar to extended birth control regimens. Okay, I'm going to stop here. If you're interested in more information, definitely look over my references and pass on any questions you have and I'll do my best to find the answers. Thank you so much again for listening. I hope you have a fantastic Christmas and I will talk to you again in the new year. Bye.